Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Folland. Welcome to another episode of Being Freelance, supported by AXA Business Insurance. Because let's face it, running a business by yourself is hard. So hurrah for AXA making something easy. You can tailor your policy to fit your business, so you only pay for what you actually need. And they give you access to a legal and tax helpline there should you need it. Get cover for your work, your tools, your reputation. It feels better being protected, being freelance. Work hard, insure easy. Search AXA Business insurance and here's the grown up bit AXA Insurance UK PLC is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority and right now let's find out what it's like being freelance for graphic designer Luke Tong a case of good relationships with people and trying to always do right by people and do my best work under promise and over deliver not vice versa and hope that that kind of generates enough good PR that work will continue to come my way. Every time you do a talk publicly, you probably get like 1% better, 1% sharper, 1% less nervous. Unless you're the creative director, you don't get to have the say. You are just kind of a cog in a machine. I definitely got to a point where I thought, I want to be the one making the decisions about how I spend my time now. That means I can decide I'm not going to do any work today. I'm going to go and meet friends or I'm going to go to the cinema in the middle of the day and have some self-care or I'm going to design a magazine now and spend a month on it. That, for me, is the real joy of being my own boss. Yeah, so there is Luke, very well known in the design world. If you've ever heard of the Birmingham Design Festival, maybe you've even been. Luke is one of the people behind that. It's a huge festival now. Uh, We're going to find out about that and everything that they're doing with Birmingham Design. Birmingham here in the UK, that is. I realise there might be other Birminghams around the world. Birmingham, it's a city in the Midlands, the West Midlands. The Midlands does what it says on the tin, really. It really is in the middle. (laughs) Of our lands. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, Luke is a lovely guy and his story coming up very soon indeed. Can't wait for you to hear that. How are you doing? You all right? Lots going on at the moment. Have you checked out the gift guide that's been updated? That's at beingfreelance.com. Loads of gift ideas for the freelancer in your life, even if that's you. There's the course if you're new to freelancing. Link at beingfreelance.com. There's the community because you're not alone being freelance where we've had an excellent Q&A recently amongst many other things. Um, we do the non-employed the week awards on a regular basis there's plenty going on please do click those links at beingfreelance.com where you can also find over 290 guests sharing their story yep in the new year we will hit 300 episodes crazy thank you very much for listening to them and uh, if you're enjoying them please do consider leaving a review and if it's your first time in these here parts please do hit subscribe or follow so that you don't miss future episodes speaking of which shall we get on with this one and go to birmingham and chat to this week's guest that is freelance graphic designer luke tong hey luke welcome to birmingham thanks for having me <laughs> it's nice i love what you've done with the place thank you ah thanks yeah as ever how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? Sure. Uh, I feel like I've had a very circuitous route to freelance where I am now. So I can give you a quick kind of potted history, if you like. Um, I did the university thing and I was very fortunate to study down in Falmouth in Cornwall. And that was in the mid 2000s, heady days uh, when everything was well in the world. And I graduated <laughs> into the recession, which was not so good. So started my career in Woolworths, in fact, looking for a design job and found one eventually 
and did three years in a big agency and then another seven years in another agency. So after my 10 year period was up, I felt I'd qualified enough to take the leap. I probably should have done it sooner and we can maybe talk more about that. But yeah, so I did 10 years in industry and then I've been five or six years freelancing since then and have done multiple things in those six years. Um, but that's kind of the, the big overview. So how did you go about getting your first freelance clients? So I was freelancing while I was still full-time employed, mm. which I don't necessarily recommend, but a lot of people do kind of... I think if you're not completely creatively satisfied in your day job, it's quite natural for designers to pick up bits and bobs on the side that kind of scratch that itch or bring in a bit of supplementary income. So my first kind of proper freelance job was a magazine called Boat Magazine that I was entrusted to design the first issue of and the subsequent five or six issues of when I was probably a year into my career, um, into my first job. And that kind of fell into my lap via a friendship and a connection. And they just said, hey, do we want to launch a magazine. Do you want to design it? And I said yes and uh, kind of learned as I went. And that lasted three or four years. Um, so that was my first kind of proper freelance job while I was still in employment. And when you got that, did that make you want to do more? Oh, yeah, completely. So I was I was kind of smitten with the format. I was already really a lover of print and I was already realising the kind of boundaries of what the commercial world of design that I was in would offer me satisfaction-wise because of all of the usual things of amends and, you know, realistic expectations of clients and what they wanted to do. And I, I just craved a little bit more creative freedom. So... Once I'd kind of realised that I could get that and I could importantly kind of work with other like minds with more of a vision for something that was a bit of a purer representation of an idea rather than something with very commercial um, ambitions, it it really did um, kind of, yeah, get me hook, line and sinker. And I, I kind of continued in the freelance magazine by night designer mode for a number of years after that on a number of other titles was hook line and sinker the second one after boat magazine <laughs> it should have been <laughs> do you know what boat magazine used to really be difficult to find in wh smiths because it wasn't in the boating <laughs> section and that really used to throw people um yeah so yeah i was i was very fortunate actually that although that was a passion project with friends that wasn't paid um it did lead to paid work and to very satisfying enjoyable uh, editorial design projects for years afterwards so I've got a lot to thank that first kind of dabble in freelance for. Mm. You said that you wish that maybe you'd gone full-time freelance sooner. Yeah yes I do I think um, well I, I don't kind of want to d dwell on ideas of regret and I'm very happy that everything kind of worked out well so I think I left at the right time for me because I was a little bit chicken and I kind of waited to be pushed rather than jumping into the big freelance world. But I was I was kind of unhappy in my agency role. And I think the agency were unhappy in me in my agency role. So I probably could have left a year or two earlier and avoided the stress. But in retrospect, you know, the day that I actually handed my notes in and decided to quit, I got a call from the university asking me if I wanted to start lecturing part time. And I think that timing was you know, very fortuitous um, and providential. And it, it may not have worked out so well if I had made that leap sooner. So I was probably ready sooner. And I'd seen lots of other people go freelance much earlier in their careers than me.
but I was just clinging on for dear life, I think, due to fear of fear of sinking, probably. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you say that the university came knocking rather yeah. brilliantly, just as you mm. needed perhaps someone to come knocking. But had yep. you then built up like a reputation of some sort? Like, where, where were you at? by that point yeah I guess uh within it's funny because it's really hard to evaluate that sitting in your own seat I I guess I had both within a niche of kind of editorial design my work had been recognized and awarded and um talked about not kindly by people so there was that kind of side that I had a bit of a profile and that had led to you know decent social media community following whatnot um so I suppose I I felt like I had a degree of viability as a freelancer that it may not all go to pot but I also I think importantly I'd got a decent reputation locally within the scene from speaking at events and doing work that was kind of visible in Birmingham so I think that there was a degree of I'd already built enough of a platform for myself that it wasn't a completely wild decision to to go freelance it was just still scary because I was you know scared how did you get into speaking at events locally? I think I just said yes when someone asked me. I think the <laughs> Birmingham, which is often the way, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I'm shy. I don't really like the sound of my own voice. I hate listening back to things. And I'm a reluctant public speaker. So it, it is ironic that I've done so much of it and that I, I do spend time on stage nowadays. I think I was just asked at something small. And I'd already... We did smaller kind of things at work even presenting to clients but also presenting to internally to teams and we'd had some training in public speaking that kind of thing so I, I guess I felt like I'd got a degree of uh, a chance at not dying completely and so I, I said yes when someone asked and I thought there was a bit of a buzz to it even though I was terrified so the next time someone asked I said yes again and and again and again and if you say yes to these things then more people will ask you so mm. I, I'd kind of spoken at everything that was happening in Birmingham that someone needed a speaker for um, and exhausted the circuit in that sense. So, yeah, that w that kind of gave me the, a degree of... I, I tell people that are reluctant public speakers that every time you do a talk publicly, you probably get like 1% better, 1% sharper, 1% less nervous. Mm. So I was probably like 10 or 15% less nervous than when I started. <laughs> so I felt like I'd got a degree of um, experience, I guess, in that area at that point. And, and actually, I, we should maybe put things in perspective. When did you actually go freelance? How long ago? As in full time? Yeah, uh, 2017, I think. So five coming up yeah. for six years. I think that's yeah. about right. And so what was like your online presence like then? You mentioned the social media. Yeah, uh, well, I I was also very fortunate to have been part of a website called Form 55, which was a, a design blog design site that started around the same time as it's nice that and you know it was one of the mm. bigger design um online journal sites did interviews and um reviews and that kind of stuff and i i wrote for them for about 10 years and was part of that little community and that had really helped me make connections with industry people and i suppose had given me access to you know people used to send me books to review and i was taking pictures of people's work that they would send me to post about and that kind of thing. So it had just given me a bit more of a presence. And I think that plus the magazine stuff had started to lead to me getting a, you know, a moderate uh, following on socials. So I felt like I'd got, you know, there, there were people that if I said I was doing something, they would see it and listen and notice and maybe mm. care. 
so that was definitely a help and I think also just from a kind of community point of view I had a good network of people in agency and freelance locally and further afield that had you know trodden the path before me and I could speak to for advice and yeah there were things starting to happen in Birmingham within the creative scene that I was part of so although it did feel totally scary actually quitting yeah I felt like I'd kind of got a bit of a safety net and some kind of kind hands around me that would stop me from completely falling that's nice yeah can you remember like what what was your first I I guess your first full-time freelance you know that when you went full-time freelance what was your first kind of projects who were those clients who that, caught that you? is a good question I, yeah I can't I can't remember exactly like what the first one would have been I know that in the first year of freelancing I think maybe four or five of the bigger projects that I did were all connected to people that I'd worked with in the agencies that I'd worked at so they were people that had also left and were starting up their own business and needed a brand or one was a guy who'd left and was a creative director at a new agency and he's he wanted his agency rebranding and he'd enjoyed working with me agency side so a lot of it was really down to that network of people that I'd worked with on a first-hand basis so it wasn't even people just recommending me to strangers it was people that I'd actually worked for before or worked with so that I think that softened the blow a little bit because there was a familiarity and an ease of working and you know they didn't all go super smoothly I'm sure there was a couple of bumps along the way but that definitely helped kind of secure that first year's income and uh, yeah gave me the confidence that I would be okay freelancing i i had it's probably worth saying that i i'd been working on a magazine for monotype called the recorder which is a typography journal and i'd be doing that right up until i decided to quit with the promise that there would be another issue the following year and that was you know that was a good chunk of money and something that i was kind of banking on and then after i quit they pulled that project so immediately i was like oh gosh this is uh, not great timing this is kind of the rug out from under me so i rather than starting with something kind of ahead of me i had nothing but that didn't that didn't seem to stay the, the case for long, and actually, I've I've never really had a period where I've not had work coming in or waiting for me. So I think that's probably testament to the fact that I waited so long that you know I was well enough known by that point within my little circle that work begets more work, and if you do a decent job for one person, you know they'll recommend you, and um, if you share your work widely enough, people will see it, and someone will need you. So that's kind of just how it's unfolded since. Did you stay connected with people on LinkedIn or just by seeing them at events? Yeah, a, a combination of... Um, so when I, I do a bit of lecturing and when I speak to my students, I talk to them about the holy trinity of social media for designers and that is Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. And I was relatively active across all three of those and using them for different things. But, you know, I had a good a good community, a good connection base there on all of those platforms. So some of it was digital, which I felt quite au fait with by then. And some of it was definitely personal offline, meeting people at things and seeing people. But I guess the two work kind of hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and how did you feel about running the business side of it? Oh, gosh. Like you clearly yeah. nailed the creativity side. Well, Perhaps you... <laughs> yeah. Uh, a big weakness there I'll be honest um yeah I felt terrified it I was the guy who was always filling his timesheets in like a fortnight late and try and putting things in on the wrong day and <laughs> no good at really spreadsheets or any kind of time tracking or money tracking or any of that so I still am not a good example for 
younger freelancers of how to do it. I kind of fly by the seat of my pants. Um, I, I run a, a company now with my friend Dan, Birmingham Design, that puts on a lot of events and stuff in Brum. And he is absolutely the opposite to me. He's brilliant at all of that admin stuff and just seems to get it. And I struggle with it so much. It's like learning a foreign language almost. So, yeah, I definitely um, had to kind of adapt and make make things work for me that I felt I could cope with. Um, so I got an accountant quite early on. I'd already got an accountant. In fact, his office was just on the end of our road, which was convenient because I'd been doing magazine work for a while. So I'd needed to pay tax mm. on that stuff. So he's he's been a godsend and, and that's been really useful for the kind of business side of things. From a kind of more soft side of the business stuff, I guess it's just been a case of good relationships with people and trying to always do right by people and do my best work under promise and over deliver not vice versa and hope that that kind of generates enough good pr that work will continue to come my way so if we if we were to look at like where your income comes from i guess the, the different yeah. streams of it you're still lecturing so when covid struck myself and various other vts so visiting tutors we were all kind of nixed immediately um, because there were there were full-time staff that needed the, the hours because the university that I lectured at also had a campus in Wuhan it was kind of doubly uh, oh tragic so so they all had to return home so they had to find kind of space for them within the the main teaching body so hmm. they just didn't need us so I haven't been regularly lecturing for you know over two years I do guest lectures now so I'll go in and I, I went in the other day and did a lecture about editorial design but I'm not frequently teaching anymore mm -hmm. so yeah my focus really is and I do still split my time and kind of wear different hats but all of my income comes from my client design work and that's me uh, working directly for clients not going into agencies it's me as a kind of studio of one collaborating with other people when I need to and then the other things that I do that are community-based aren't income generating for me yet let's say what those other things are then yeah so you mentioned Birmingham design what what are you actually involved in yeah so that's essentially a, a glorified company name for the Birmingham design festival so that was how Dan and I started out with bigger events in Brum and we've been doing that for about five years now and that is essentially a, a one big hit in June where we put on a large multi-site multi-day event with 100 or so speakers and that takes the best part of a year to plan and organize with a team of friends and volunteers so that's kind of the big spike but then we run some other events throughout the year we run a, a smaller thing called gather in birmingham which used to be glug which happens a few times a year uh, we have a shop which is in the co-working space that dan and i are involved with and based in so there's various kind of strings to the bow and then there's a website and we do a mentoring scheme for young designers and I design a magazine for Birmingham Design as well. So there's all those kind of different threads to that that collectively probably take up about a third to a half of my time, which is a big kind of time sink, but it's also hugely enjoyable and satisfying and rewarding. And I'm sure has led to me getting other work because of increased profile and visibility and stuff. So yeah, while it's not a very sensible commercial decision, I'm sure I could be earning more money if I wasn't doing any of that. I wouldn't change it for the world. And it's, um, yeah, it's part of the reason why I'm, I very much enjoy the balance of freelance because you can just choose what you're going to spend your time on. I love that. But I mean, it begs the, qu <laughs> it begs the question of like, how do you end up organising a massive festival? Did you start with smaller things 
and build build yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, we did. And people often say to us like, "Oh, how how did you start a festival? How can I start a festival?" And the the hard answer and the unpopular answer is, we spent like ten years making connections, practicing on smaller events, and kind of building up to it. Mm. And Dan was running a um, a meetup in Birmingham, which you know had good regular attendees. And I was starting to get involved with things outside of work. So I, I guest curated a Glug event, which was a big um, design meetup in Brum. And we kind of realised that we had complementary skill sets. And he he was the one with the ambition to start a festival. It had never really been on my radar. I just was happily plodding along, trying not to get fired and thinking about freelance. <laughs> and uh, Dan said, oh, do you want to go out for a coffee? And I didn't know him all that well, but we'd, we'd been to each other's events um, and I knew him kind of casually. And he just said, look, I, I'm thinking about starting a festival in Brum and I'd like you to partner uh, with me on it. I think we'd be a good team. And and we'd got a good group of um, mutual friends in industry who we called on and they joined us. And we, we just said, let's give it a year and plan a, a big festival and see what happens. And it went surprisingly well. So we said, oh, we should probably do that again to check that it wasn't a fluke. So we did it the following year and that was also really good. Um and then COVID hit and other things kind of came along and we managed to have another festival this year. But we we kind of realised that what we were doing works and there was a need for it. There was a gap here. And also that probably what we were doing was bigger than just a festival, but was more of a, a, a year round community initiative. So we changed the name, shortened the name to Birmingham Design from Birmingham Design Festival. And the festival is kind of our big thing, but we do lots of other bits now throughout the year, like I mentioned. So like workshops and other... Yeah, exactly. And um, we run a website which has like jobs boards and a freelance directory that anyone can sign up to. And we run a mentoring scheme for graduates. And we have the shop and the magazine and uh, put on other events and support other people that are running events. Um, And members of our team run other different events for different groups of people in the city. So we're trying to be a bit of a hub and a beacon and a you know, a, a something, a support for the industry here in the Midlands. So what does your, like, day or week look like when you're... <laughs> Buried. Yeah, <laughs> balancing uh, yeah. client work and that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it. I try not to take on more work than I should, but that never really works out well. And I always end up saying yes to probably more stuff than I should for fear of work drying up. I think that's every freelancer's kind of curse and tension that if the work's there you tend to say yes to it because you're worried that it might not be there in future so i'm i'm always busy and i i dread the work-life balance question because you know i i work more than i should i know that um so it regularly looks like i work in a co-working space in in the jewelry quarter in birmingham called the joint works so i'm there most days um I'll start at eight and leave at four because my wife finishes at four thirty and we drive home together, and then I'll I'll work in the evenings most evenings, um, which isn't always ideal or always intentional. But um, the festival requires a lot of admin time, a lot of emailing and planning and whatnot. So yeah, if I do that during the day, then I have client work to do at night, and if I do the other way around, then the other thing is still waiting. So. There's definitely kind of peaks and troughs throughout the year and quieter seasons. But if it isn't the festival, there's always another event to be planning or a collaboration or a something. So, yeah, definitely struggle to turn off. And also, I there's a really great quote that um, a friend of mine, Jim Sutherland, uses in his presentations, uh, which is this. When work is a pleasure, life is a joy. When work is duty, life is slavery. 
Um, it's by Maxim Gorky. And I, I love that because for me, work is pleasure. Like I, I'm very fortunate to be doing what I love and what I think I was put on earth to be doing. So a working life does feel very joyful to me. It doesn't feel like mm. a duty um, or slavery. So yeah, I, I do struggle with that tension for sure. And uh, my wife would agree if you spoke to her. <laughs> but between the two, like organising Birmingham design and doing your client work, do you specifically say, right, the next few hours I'm only doing this thing or I'm only... It sounds like, you no. know, you kind of said, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I wish I could. And I think actually sometimes if I have a rare day where I work from home home, I can be a bit more disciplined and I can try and ignore my emails or ignore you know put festival things out of mind for a bit and if i have got a deadline or if i'm in a flow state is it they call it you know if i'm in a, in like a good deep work vibe i will be quite disciplined and stick on a project for you know a number of hours even a number of days straight but usually especially now that i sit next to dan in the joint works we're constantly you know every 10 minutes we're chatting about something or we're sending each other something or we're putting an order in for some books or we're booking a speaker or we're discussing something that we've thought of so work is quite broken in that sense there's not a lot of um yeah good focused uninterrupted time and I kind of I do kind of like that I think I like quite a bitty mm. I'm a sort of person that won't just do one job and do it start to finish and then start the next job I'll be like doing six different jobs around the house at the same time 10 minutes at a time on each one and I'll kind of rotate around them so I think my brain's kind of wired that way and I'm okay with that as long as all of the projects keep advancing. Yeah. So you like being in a co-work space then? Yes. I I think I'm, I missed it very much during COVID as I'm sure, you know, most people did that were forced to work from home. And while I love uh, my online relationships and long distance friendships and things, there is just something so rewarding about being in a physical space with other people and, serendipitous little interactions in the kitchen making a drink or you know getting some fresh air and bumping into someone or whatever it might be so yeah I'm I'm very much an advocate for being out amongst the people and then you know I I love also days from home where I'm on my own just listening to music or Netflix in the background and I'm just getting on with my work so I think a, a balance is what's working for me and is keeping me kind of sane and productive but it varies so much, doesn't it, based on what role you're doing and how much interaction you need with other people and those kind of things. It's funny. You seem like you love it so much, but I almost wonder how you coped just sitting in one office in an agency. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, I I don't think I coped brilliantly well, is the honest truth. I think I had, I was fortunate that the design team that I was part of, uh, there were some really good people in that, including one of my best friends, a guy called Matt. So that kind of sanity was good and getting out for a walk at lunchtime was good etc i think it did kind of grind me down over the years and that idea of other people making 99 percent of the decisions about work and about you know what you were working on what the work should be about it was kind of death by a thousand cuts in the end and i felt like ironically all of my kind of agency to direct the work had been removed while i was agency side and i think that's you know that's fine it's not Unless you're the creative director, you don't get to have the say, um, you know, or the MD. You you are just kind of a cog in a machine. And I, I learned loads while I was doing that, but I definitely got to a point where I thought I want to be the one making the decisions about how I spend my time now. And for me, that, you know, that means I can 
decide I'm not going to do any work today. I'm going to go and meet friends or I'm going to go to the cinema in the middle of the day and have some self-care or I'm going to design a magazine now and spend a month on it because I can do that because I just did a good you know, a job that's paid well and that's covered me for a couple of months. So that for me is the real joy of being my own boss. Back with Luke in a moment, but this episode of Being Freelance is supported by Ipsy as well. They are the Association for the Independent Professional and Self-Employed, IPSE. Their website is full of advice, how-tos, stuff about finances and insurance and IR35, which I know is a very UK thing, legal information, mental well-being, physical well-being, all the stuff about tax. Uh, Do you know what? All the fun stuff and all the boring stuff, frankly, of being freelance is covered on their website ipse.co.uk but there's much more to them of course because if you've become a member you get access to loads of templates to all of the perks uh, such as saving money on your tech so like your next computer or even just your next shopping at the supermarket you could save money on plus they organize huge events and awards and not to mention the fact that they represent freelancers in the uk to government so if you fancy being part of that go to ipse.co.uk that's ips se.co.uk and thank you very much to all of those guys for supporting this episode okay let's get back to chatting to luke you mentioned that sometimes you collaborate with others as it not in in terms of birmingham design but rather within your own business yeah and that um you know that's been through necessity because i have quite a narrow skill set so I don't love the term niching and find, you know, but the idea of finding a niche, finding something that you're good at and sticking with it has really worked for me. So I, I try and only take on projects which are either editorial projects or brand design projects. And with a brand, there's a bit of scope there for rollout and advertising and, you know, general graphic design, but it's, it's largely working with people that need a rebrand or a new brand for a charity or an agency or a, a small business or those kind of things and that means that I'm very happy and you know I'm quite I'm okay at those things but it means there's loads of things I can't do so if someone comes to me and says we need a new brand and we also need a website I don't want to say sorry go away I want to say I'll do the brand bit and I know know a guy or I know a girl who can do the other bit so I'm fortunate to be able to pull together and collaborate with friends and uh, other people in industry who are really good at those things I'm really terrible at. So sometimes that's, you know, digital designer, sometimes that's copywriter, sometimes that's photographers or videographers, animators, um, not usually other designers because I'm quite protective and enjoy doing that stuff. But sometimes it will be working with a junior or an intern who will obviously get paid for what they're doing. But that's more of a, a relationship where I'm hopefully showing them the ropes and helping them develop and grow and they're helping me out by doing some of the heavy lifting on you know if if a project is quite big and timelines are quite short um as a studio of one you've only got so many hours in the day and when i'm doing so many other things time can pass quite quickly so yeah sometimes it's just an extra pair of hands so you're saying that you're you know somebody comes to you yeah brilliant love the logo and the new feel and all of that but yep. we want a website as well. The website would be billed through your company? Probably not. It would usually be that I would... Well, it's worked different ways, different times, and it depends on the client and the relationship and how it's come to me. Usually I would go into that at the beginning and say, I can do this. 
this guy so for instance i work with a really talented friend in birmingham called ryan who is a digital designer i would go into it with ryan and we would go in together and say i'll do this bit ryan will do this bit and we'll bill you separately and you know we'll be transparent about costs and things and we'll work together but we'll stick within our specialisms and together you'll get like a mini agency that's more multi-pronged than if it was just me and we've we've extended that team out broader before to you know be several different people in different roles so it can get a bit more complex but really the client ends up getting a much better cheaper product than if they were going direct to an agency where there'd be you know much higher agency fees and project managers and that kind of bloated agency thing that can happen sometimes mm. so with me in this kind of leaner way of working it's very much you you get what you need and you get what you pay for yeah but they're dealing with all of those independent yes, people yeah. themselves exactly that yeah and i suppose i i do act as a project manager sometimes on those things if i'm the key contact for the client for instance or but i always like dealing directly with the client so i always like other people that are working on things to also be dealing directly with the client rather than going through a buffer so i think that's as long as it's not a huge amount of individuals i think clients quite like dealing with people directly that are working on their brand um so it makes no sense for me to try and interpret amends for a website when you know ryan's the expert much yeah. more sense for him to speak to the client than me and i'm intrigued about bringing on an intern like at what point mm. did um well i know you said you've got too much heavy lifting as yeah. it were, but <laughs> yeah but still it can feel like quite a thing especially when you seem like somebody who obviously enjoys the freedom to kind of just go and do whatever they want whenever they feel like it yeah it's been a journey that really because i've been involved in mentoring and having people that could be interns for a long time and i've only recently in the last year or two figured out how to kind of make that leap work because the thing about interns is they're usually very junior and that's great because they're full of energy and enthusiasm but they're not massively experienced just by the nature of the fact that they haven't been designing for long so there is a degree of a trade-off there that, you know, you're, you're not paying them the same as you'd be paying, you know, a senior designer, but they require more time and energy from you to guide and direct and, you know, art direct, whatever. So it has to be worth your while to get someone on board to then have to spend time, you know, helping them understand the way that you work and, you know, educating them and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it um, I mean, sometimes it works really well and other times it doesn't work as well. But there's a couple of people that I've I've worked with like that. Um, there's a, a young designer called Grace who has helped me on a, a number of projects, um, a couple of magazine projects and other things over the last couple of years. And that that's kind of worked really well because she knows what she's doing. I know how she works and communication is very good between us. So, it yeah, it definitely can work. It's just a it's definitely a learning curve as well, because you're then being back to a kind of design manager which isn't something that I relish the thought of being. I don't have aspirations to, you know, start my own company and have lots of staff. I like being the one that makes the decisions and gets on the tools and does the work. But sometimes you do just need, you need more pairs of hands. Mm. When it comes to a, a job like a magazine, mm. uh, that sounds a bit more like a sort of retainer kind of thing than perhaps doing a branding project. Yes, yeah, it can be. And it has been uh, a couple of times, you know, people tend to not want you just for a one-off thing and that's good that means that if it's a you know a program for a i don't know a cultural institution they probably want something multiple times a year and that means you can start to kind of find a working relationship and learn the style 
and get into a bit of a groove and you can push things. Um, so that is nice. But of course, not everyone wants to have the same person doing their publication for a long time because things can get stale. And yeah, people like to freshen things up and work with different people. So those relationships are often ongoing for a period of time and then they you know, naturally cease and you, you pick something else up that kind of fills its place. So you don't, well, I suppose after that first instance where you thought you had work lined up and then it fell away, yeah. like yes. you don't, I don't know, kind of feel like a bit like you've been kicked when when they've moved on. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that happens with every every designer, with every kind of client, when you know that they're then working with someone else or you know that they've gone elsewhere, mm. you immediately think, flipping heck, what did I do wrong? Or how could I have serviced them better so they didn't leave? Or, you know, was I too expensive? Or was I too slow? Or was I, you know, not good enough? And I think you can probably go around in circles and worry about that more than you should, because there's a natural life cycle with brands and their agencies and with brands and their designers. And I think the 10 years in industry that I did had prepared me for that, that there's always a season of working well with a client. And there's a little bit of a there's probably a graph of like the, you know, the green pastures and then the, the tougher times and the, you know, it only takes someone else to come into a, a client side who has a, a pre-existing relationship with an agency or a designer. And immediately you just lose that slot because they use their preferred person or budgets change and um, marketing objectives change, directions change. And you just have to take it on the chin and, you know, accept that that's part of being a designer. Very rare will you you know work on a client for 40 years or something I, i'm sure people some people do and there'll be exemptions to that exceptions to that rule but i think unless every client is ditching you every time uh, it's probably not something to be so worried about and i you know i'm fortunate that a lot of clients will come to me when they need me and then i won't hear from them for a year or two but then they'll pop back up when they need something else that i'm suitable for and i'd rather that than kind of try and drain them of every piece of work if I'm not the right guy, I'd rather kind of uh, be there when they need me for what I'm good at. Yeah. Oh, it certainly sounds like you have a great way of dealing with clients. But, you you know, you also mentioned being shy as well. Yeah. What What do you think works well in sort of standing your ground, but being friendly? I don't know, that whole client relationship thing. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, even today, I was just chatting with my wife on the way home about a project that is it feels like it could be going off the rails. It isn't yet, but there's just a degree of how do you, how and when do you assert your authority when you're being paid by someone to do what they want? And there's a real tension there that all designers kind of face, which is, are you being hired to realise someone else's vision and just kind of produce what's in their head? Or are they paying you because you bring an expertise to the table that they don't have? And I think that client relationship is always different and always interesting and always requires a degree of nurturing and a degree of compromise and a degree of um, education sometimes that you're explaining to them why you can do what you can do and how you work best and those kind of things. So it's, um, yeah, it's never straightforward. I'm, you know, I like to think I'm relatively laid back and easygoing and I'm very accommodating to clients' wishes. So very rarely will I say, no, that's a terrible idea. I'm not going to try that. But I will always give my opinion and speak my mind and say, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. We can try that. But here's why I wouldn't recommend it. Or here's why I think this idea or route or approach is better. And it's still their decision at the end of the day. But 
the hope is that more clients than not will trust you to do what you think is right and will pay for the expertise that you offer rather than just pay for the service of generating something that they want. And I think that's where that kind of early piece of discovery and kind of fact finding and kind of sniffing each other out a little bit is where you kind of figure out what do they want me for? Is this going to be a successful relationship or not? Is this, are there any red flags? Yeah. And you know, you can still ignore those and go head first and it, and it all becomes a nightmare and you think, oh yeah, I should have probably listened to my gut. And other times it works out really well and surprises you and the client loves what you do. And you know, you, you learn from all of those things. So I'm still learning that, you know, I'm five or six years in, 16 years into my career, I guess. And probably one in 10 projects doesn't go how I would want it to. And at the end, I'll be a bit disappointed and think, oh, you know, that that one got away. That could have been better. They picked the wrong route or I showed them the wrong route or, you know, something went awry. But at least nine times out of 10, I would say, you know, it goes really well. They're happy. I'm happy. Uh, I get paid. I'm proud of the work and it leads to more work. So, you know, as long as it's that kind of uh, balance, I'll I'll be very happy. And thinking about all the different ways that you collaborate across client work and uh, Birmingham design, what do you think mm. is, like, I guess, key to a good collaboration or what to look for? Yeah, I think trust is really key. I, you know, I, I'm really fortunate that I experienced that with Dan in that we both sew a lot of hours into something without really seeing the other one doing it. We just know that the other person is also equally kind of, we're equally yoked, we're equally invested and we're equally kind of sacrificial in what we're doing. And I don't question that and he doesn't question that, even though we're doing very different things. So I think that trust is... Uh, is really beneficial. That doesn't always cut across every kind of relationship and every scenario. I think clarity is really important when you're dealing with clients, particularly because, you know, their work might be your biggest issue and your biggest thing, but you're probably just one little piece of their puzzle that they've got to focus on that week. They're probably spinning loads of plates. And, you know, if they've asked for a colour change or something, you can get really stressed and het up about it. And actually, you can often just resolve those things with a bit of clear communication. And that's sometimes picking up the phone or going to see them or, uh, you know, writing a a clear email. But I think clarity is um, a real key, kind of editing your thoughts down and just speaking, you know, really clearly and plainly and honestly. Um, So I definitely found that that helps. Um, I think having conviction, so really being able to stand up for what you think and say what you think and have a good rationale is also something that people really respect you for. And if a client is asking for something that's a bad idea, it really is your job to tell them. So, yeah, there's a you know a degree of straightforwardness and sometimes bluntness, but, you know, being brave and saying what you really think, being bold in what you say and being clear in what you say, I think is is really good and then if they choose to ignore that that's fine but they were warned and it's their decision at the end of the day if they're the paying client um so i think that those a combination of those things of you know integrity and openness trust honesty mutual respect and uh, you know a frankness and a boldness in communication tends to lead to good outcomes as long as you're not being like a jerk and just saying like no i'm not going to do that and stamping your feet i think people like to understand the reasons for things but if you can give them a good rationale they tend to you know we trust experts you you know if someone tells you 
you know, if you go to the doctor, you trust what they say because you know that they know what they're on about. And I think, you know, that's the kind of position that you try to be in as a solo designer is that, you know, they're coming to you because you know more about their problem than they do or you should do by the end of it. Um, so although they will know their business inside out and you won't, you will know lots of things that they don't about trends and the market and, um, you know, good design practice and all the rest of it. So you can you can hopefully collaborate with them to produce something good. Now, Luke, I mean, you you said about the importance of speaking honestly, but that, that doesn't quite work in this part <laughs> because I'd like three stories from you. I always ask for this. So two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me? Okay, so here's the first one. Um, while making a magazine, I stumbled across a dead body. Uh, <laughs> so that's the first one. Uh, the next one is that... Phil Mitchell from EastEnders complimented me on my photography skills when he was in my bedroom. <laughs> and, and the next, the last one is that I fire clients automatically if they ask for more than one round of amends. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what's funny? Well, there's so much that's funny. But when you were describing... <laughs> Uh, you and Dan in your co-work space earlier and the way you're yeah. bouncing off each other and people coming in. I was thinking, this sounds like a really cool TV show. I want to be in Luke's life. <laughs> and now Trust you're me, saying you that you found yeah. a dead body. <laughs> well, did I? Is it true? So how did you find a dead body? The first magazine that I made was Boat Magazine. And that magazine was all about shining a light on cities that were not particularly well covered in the news and the media and maybe had a bad reputation. So we made issues about Sarajevo and Detroit and, you know, various places like that. And one of them was Athens when it was the crisis there. So there were riots and there was all sorts. And we were taken on a tour of some of the darker parts of the city. And uh, we were walking down an alleyway and our guide, a guy called Panos, he just looked over and he said, oh, no, there is a dead body. Um, <laughs> And sure enough, there was a dead body. And then as we were walking down the street, police descended and we kind of shuffled off. And uh, yeah. <laughs> the second one. <laughs> yeah. Phil Mitchell complimented your photography while in your bed. It's just the fact that that kept getting better as a sentence. In fact, uh, there yeah, might uh, not be a better sentence in the English language. <laughs> so Phil Mitchell, just to explain for anybody who doesn't know around the world, is like a, a huge soap star character even if you don't watch the soap that he's in EastEnders yeah. Yeah, you kind know of pop who culture Phil now. Is. Yeah, yeah it's like a big hard man in it for years yeah um so I studied design in Falmouth which is in Cornwall which is where Steve McFadden who plays Phil Mitchell has property and when I was in my third year the house that student house that we were in was up for sale and he turned up one day to have a look around our house to see about buying it um, in his jogging bottoms and he was exactly as you would expect he was quite gruff and he came in my bedroom and I had loads of photos stuck on my walls and he said I can't even remember his exact words but he basically said oh you like photography then do you this is good or you know words to that effect and then walked out and I didn't watch his tenders so I didn't really get what the big deal was but I took some sneaky pictures of him uh, in his joggers <laughs> to prove prove that he'd been there uh, and he didn't buy the house and you know we stayed there and, and that was it but that was our, our little brush with with uh, yeah, soap royalty. Wow. So your final one, you would fire a cl client. I fire all clients if they ask for more than one round of amends. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay. I'm just, I I'm just militant. <laughs> do is that in your like contract when like do you explain oh, this to them before they begin? R- written in blood. Yep, that's what they sign up for. Okay. Look, I. <sighs> I just don't believe that. I mean, ridiculous as Phil Mitchell <laughs> coming into... As ridiculous as that story is. In his joggers. I believe the dead body one, just because that's mm-hmm. just so grim to make yeah. up and bring into this podcast, were it not true. <laughs> Phil Mitchell is ludicrous, and I would have said was a lie, except that I can't believe that you would fire... I mean, you might not like doing more amends, but I don't... Yeah. I don't even know that you'd use the word fire a client. I don't know. You're, you're such a nice... No, I, it's that. <laughs> it, that's the lie. Yeah. It's the lie. I'm afraid it is. You're right, yeah. Yes! I, uh, I very, very rarely fire a client, but Phil definitely was in my bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad. Oh, that was brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Luke, if you could could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? I would say that it is for you, despite your shyness, that you can do it, but just don't rush it. And, you know, when the time is right, it will happen for you, which is ironically exactly what did happen. Um, But I think I'd spent a long time believing that I probably wasn't the right sort of person to go freelance because I thought you had to be quite out there and confident and loud. And so, yeah, I, th- I think I would reassure myself that you you will figure out how to go about doing it. It just may take you a bit longer than other people. Nice. But despite you thinking that you had to be loud and mm. confident, you know, all these other adjectives. Yeah. You have made it work for you, but interestingly, you've mm. also made it work for you in a way that involves being almost the centre of attention or helping other people be the <laughs> centre of attention, yeah. perhaps, is a better way to put it. Like facilitating yeah. community and creativity yeah. around you. I know. It, it, it kind of baffles me, too, because it doesn't <laughs> feel like a natural fit, but it does yeah. feel like my wife is always telling me to get out of my own way. Like if I want to do something, but I feel like I'm not equipped or not, you know, not brave enough or whatever, she'll she'll encourage me and say, like, get out of your own way. Don't write yourself off because you're an introvert or because you're shy or, or you're self-conscious. Just figure out a way of doing it or get the guts to do it and see if it's see what it's like. And if, you know, if it doesn't work, you don't have to do it forever. That would be crazy. But if you you do it and you find that you're OK at it or that you enjoy it, maybe you need to kind of stop writing yourself off and give things a go and I I feel like that's been this journey in the story of me with public speaking and events and things is that it doesn't feel natural but it does feel comfortable now and it does feel enjoyable now which it didn't at the start and I know that's because I've practiced and I'm better at it now and I'm less afraid and I think that a lot of people hate the idea of something so they never try it they try it and they dislike it and they don't ever do it again and i think certainly with you know confidence and public speaking and all of those kind of things you have to kind of push through that pain (laughs) phase and you eventually may well discover that you like it even though you never thought you would and i think i'm a good example of that that i'm kind of an unlikely front man for something that I never wanted to be and never really felt like was my role. But 
it was kind of a, a necessary evil, if you like, to to get things done. You you have to step out and and do things sometimes and lead things. And um, I guess that's yeah, that's what I found. Luke, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, go to beingfreelance.com as ever. As for all of our guests, there will be links through to what they're up to, which means, of course, you can not only find Luke's rather marvellous looking website, uh, but also uh, stuff about Birmingham design. So particularly yeah. if you're in that neck of the woods, or for that matter, if you ever happen to be flying to the UK when it's on. We have people that fly from around the world to us, Steve. It's it baffles yeah. us but people people come from all over the world to bdf so yeah we would we would love to see you we'd love you to come and check us out people that's cool listening. do you know i'm sure mm-hmm. have you had aaron draplin speak at it we have he was very fortunately he was he came and spoke in our first year he really took a punt on us and he was amazing he was one of my wow. favorite designers so yeah, yeah we were delighted I just saw his to have him. photo come up on your website he's uh mm. if um We'll put a link to Aaron's episode of Being Freelance as well. Absolute legend. Yeah, there's quite a story from when he was on. But yeah, very, very cool. And also, that's the second time I'm pretty sure that the jewellery quarter has been mentioned as well because Tiana J. Williams is also from Birmingham and um, was on the podcast as well. Yeah, she's a... Uh, there we are I've, do you know what each episode Brilliant. has a transcript and i've just googled the transcript and it says jewelry quarter in birmingham there you go i see it yeah i found her yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. so there you are there's lots of homework after this episode you, all yeah, these great. episodes that you can go and listen to and also go check out what birmingham designer up to but luke thank you so much and all the best being freelance steve thank you so much for having me i feel like i've prattled on about myself which i immediately feel bad about but thank you for having me and uh, listening and asking really good questions i've had a really good time chatting to you thank you there we go how nice was luke and speaking of aaron draplin's episode if you've never heard it you're missing out on stuff like this why did i go freelance because i could do better fuck man so far so good don't ask as, as don't if, ask as just if, take it steve take it they've already got me monday through saturday but if i'm going to give you my sunday night and sunday you're paying for it Number four. Oh, no, there only needs to be three. We're not doing three, Steve. We're doing four. You put me through this. <laughs> it's so good. Search your podcast app. Go to beingfreelance.com. Listen to Aaron's story. Okay, I will speak to you next week for another one of these. I'll see you in the community even sooner if you're over there. In the meantime, you have a great week. Being Freelance. Being Freelance.